All right, good morning, church. It is great to gather together for worship again. It's great to see so many of you all together here in this room together. This is fantastic. Uh, I love the Bible. I, I love God's Word. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself to us. In these pages, we can know about God, but we can also come to know God. We can see Him in His Word. We can see Him at work throughout all of history right through today. Now, there are many great stories and inspirational quotes that so many of us know so well. We have a lot of them memorized. We might have some of them painted on a picture hanging in our homes, and that's great. But despite our love of and knowledge of so many wonderful stories and inspirational quotes, God's Word has many difficult passages. There are passages that seem to be head-scratchers. There are passages that sometimes when we read them, we don't like them. There are some passages in Scripture that don't seem right, and so we often skip over them, or when we read them, we just zone out for a moment and then tune back in when we get to another familiar, beloved story. There are passages that just don't seem to make sense. And so we kind of avoid them. Now we've come to John chapter 12 in our series this year on John's Gospel. Here in chapter 12 as well as in chapter 13, there are a couple of passages that we typically might just skip right over or ignore or don't really stop to ponder the significance of. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at a couple of these difficult and challenging passages. These passages raise some interesting questions and I want us to seriously just think through them. I want us to rest on God's Word to us. Let it sink down into us. And so I've titled these two messages this week and next week, That the Scriptures Might Be Fulfilled. These two passages either quote Scripture or talk about something happening to fulfill Scripture. These passages raise questions when we slow down and avoid our minds wandering off as we read through them. These questions are important questions when it comes to our understanding of God, ourselves, and our relationship with God. So let's start with prayer and then get into God's Word together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word to us, God. We here in this building this morning, we love You. We love Your Word to us. So many of us here in this room, God, have memorized passages, are familiar with so many other passages, God. We love reading and studying and learning from Your Word. And yet, God, we are human. We have finite minds. We don't have the entire book memorized and can pull out every little bit of Scripture whenever we think about it. There is stuff that we read that we don't always understand or, or perhaps even like. It doesn't always make sense to us. And God, this morning, I just pray that as we open your word to one or two of these passages here, God, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to you, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear what you would have us learn from your word, God. God, may I decrease and you increase. God, just get the speaker out of the way this morning that the people here in this building, myself included, here, 
from you and you alone. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Now before we jump into the text, I want you just to think about the Bible like it's a movie or a theater production, or maybe movies maybe a better example. Uh, or if you're into reading novels, think of the Bible just like a regular novel that you pick up at a bookstore. Uh, now when there's a movie that's on TV that you've never seen before, and we just flip through the channels, maybe we're looking for something, maybe if you're not from my generation where you actually just flip through channels, you didn't have a guide. Um, if you're younger than me, then I mean, maybe you can just ignore this. Uh, but those of you that are my age and older, imagine yourself flipping through channels because there's no guide to look at to find something that's on. Uh, and you kind of go back and forth over this channel with this movie a few times and you watch it for a couple minutes here and there. Uh, and so you see some characters, you might see some action that's taking place. Um, but without watching the entire thing, you don't really understand what's always happening or why something might be happening. Uh, it's kind of like picking up a novel and randomly reading a couple of pages here and there. Maybe just reading the last chapter. We come to learn of a few characters and some things that they do, but we don't understand the full context or the motivation or purpose or reason behind many of the things that we read in that one chapter in those few pages. And the Bible can be like that. We have this incredible, intricate tapestry woven together. We have the story of God and creation and redemption. And unless we are familiar with the entire story, some individual parts of it may not always make much sense. Or we cannot appreciate their true beauty because we're not aware of all of the background. And so today we're going to look at one small piece of text. And I'm going to do my best to really help us understand it in its context of the larger story of the Bible. So let's read this text together. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 12, we're going to start about halfway through verse 36. Now here Jesus is talking to a large group of people here in chapter 12, something that he's done quite often in the previous chapters. And let's pick it up halfway through verse 36. So when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people. Some believe, but many do not. And John writes that even though Jesus performed a bunch of miracles in their presence, these people did not believe in him. And then he says that this was so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And then John quotes from two places in Isaiah. The first mentions people not believing when they were told and shown signs. The second then says they could not believe as they had had their eyes blinded and their hearts hardened, so that they would not believe. First question, what? Does God blind people's eyes to Him? Really? What does this mean? This passage does not seem to fit with what we think we know about God, does it? Is there a context that helps us understand this? Well, 
Let's start out by looking quickly at what John has shown us to this point in his gospel. Maybe that'll help us start to see the bigger picture a little bit more. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, anyone remember the Greek word? Anothen. Again, from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one is even able to see the activity of God unless they are born from above, unless there is the work of the Spirit in them. In John 5, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes to a pool in which there's a large crowd of people all in need of healing. All these people are in need, and Jesus goes to one lame man who has no faith, has nothing to offer. Jesus chooses this one man in the midst of the crowd of people, and he heals this one man. He doesn't heal everyone. He heals this one man, and then he withdraws from the crowd. In John chapter 6, Jesus creates a massive feast for thousands and thousands of people right in front of them. And then he walks on water. These people having their bellies filled all come to Jesus, and Jesus tells them that they do not believe in him, despite all he has taught and all he has shown them. Jesus says that everyone the Father gives to him will come to him. Everyone who comes, he will give eternal life to. And then Jesus says that no one can come unless the Father draws them. And this is an action that the Father is doing, this drawing. At the end of the chapter, Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. The crowd is filled with people who do not believe. And Jesus says no one is even able to come to him truly in faith unless it is granted to that person by the Father to come. John 6, 65. And with the disciples standing there, the rest of the entire crowd walks away. In John chapter 8, in front of another crowd, Jesus says that people are slaves. Our human will is enslaved to sin. We are born in sin. We have a sin nature. And as such, we are enslaved to sin. We do as our sin nature desires. And only Jesus can set an enslaved person free. The people there, they don't listen. They don't understand. They simply want to kill Jesus. In chapter 9, Jesus comes to a man born blind. Jesus says he was born blind so that God's power would be displayed in him. And then Jesus heals the man. And then what happens? All the people standing around, the people in the whole community, all the Jewish people, they get angry. They don't believe in Jesus. In John 10, Jesus talks about sheep. He says only his sheep hear his voice. His sheep will follow him. Those who are not his sheep will not recognize his voice, will not follow him. There's a crowd of non-believing Jews, and Jesus simply says that they do not hear him because they are not his sheep. In John 11, we see that Lazarus gets sick and dies, and Jesus says that it is for the glory of God. Jesus raises the dead man to life, and again, there are some who believe, and there are crowds of people who do not believe. Are you sensing the pattern here over and over and over again? We finally come to John chapter 12. Here we have yet another crowd of people to whom Jesus has shown many miraculous signs to. John says that Jesus leaves them and hides himself from them. Even though they had seen God move, even though they had seen miracles performed right in front of them, they did not believe. And John writes that they did not believe as to fulfill Scripture, as to fulfill what was written in Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he heard? Who has seen the works of God? 
Signs were given, and yet they did not believe. And so John writes, therefore, they could not believe because God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they would not turn to Him. Just contemplate that for a moment. What is your reaction to hearing that? What is your reaction, not to what I'm saying, but to the written Scripture Before we jump to Isaiah and see that the text, see that text in its own context, I just want to remind us what we read in Romans and in John and Ephesians and all of our scriptures. I want to look at a couple of uh, verses. I'm going to paraphrase them all, so you don't need to bother looking these up. Uh, in Romans, it says that people have a sin nature. As people fall in an Adam, we inherit the sin nature. It's from Romans 5. We are sinners from birth. None of us is righteous. None of us seeks for God. Jesus says in John 8 that we are slaves to sin. In Romans 1, it says that we suppress the truth of God. The people talking to Jesus in, in John 8 say that we've never been slaves to anyone. They're suppressing that truth. Romans says all have sinned. Ephesians chapter 2 says we, yes, we in the church, we were all children of wrath, just like the rest of the world. Romans 1 says that God's wrath is giving people what they want, which is not God. We go deeper into our sin. God is holy and just and will judge sin. All will be judged because of sin. Are you tracking with me so far? The picture of our condition before God is not pretty. Sin brings judgment. Sin deserves judgment. All have sinned. All deserve judgment. Those were not fun sentences to write in my notes this week but they are all true. We see in John that Jesus comes and does all these miraculous signs and wonders and teaches with authority and time after time people do not believe and they just walk away. And John then gives this quote from Isaiah. So please turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. It's a little bit about the midway of your Bible after Psalms. If you're not familiar with Isaiah, he was a prophet. He was an amazing man of God. If there were some people in Scripture that we might want to look to as being righteous and good examples to seek out, Isaiah would be on that list of people that we would want to strive to be like. Now I'm just going to summarize here the first few verses. In Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, he writes that he sees the Lord on a throne, and then he gives a few more details. He writes that he sees God. Angels are crying, holy, 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 the earth is filled with his glory. How does Isaiah respond in verse 5 when he sees God? He cries out, woe is me, kill me now, I am not worthy to be in the presence of God. He recognizes his own sinfulness. He recognizes God's holiness. In this strange story, we see an angel touching a coal to his mouth and saying that Isaiah's guilt was taken away. His sin was atoned for. And so let's pick it up here in Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Note the us. God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. 
keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah, sins freshly atoned for by God, enthusiastically volunteers to go for God and bring his word to people. And what does God give Isaiah to proclaim? Judgment. Judgment on people. And what was the judgment? That people would hear but not understand. They would see but not perceive. They would be blinded. They would be hardened. Continuing on in Isaiah, uh, there in verse 11, it says, Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste and without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is as desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump." Now, in Scripture, when you see this cry, how long, it's not really a question of God asking about timelines. It is a cry for God to act. We see this in several places, including in Revelation, the martyred saints. How long, O Lord? They're not asking what, what time. It's like, God, do something. And God says that this judgment is permanent. But He gives a glimpse of hope. A stump will remain. There will be a remnant left. Now, there are some other great passages that talk about the remnant, and I'm, I'm going to try to touch on some of those briefly a little bit later. But I wanted us to see this judgment from God, the blinding of eyes, the hardening of hearts, as a just judgment on people for their sin. But also that God refers to a holy seed remaining, a glimpse of something to come. So are you still with me? I haven't seen more than three or four, three or four people get up and walk out, so we're... I'm praying that you're still following along. This is really tough, complicated stuff, but I'm glad you are here this morning. I know this is a lot. This is heavy stuff. And we're, gonna try, we're trying to take a look at this big picture, these amazing truths as they spread out across all of Scripture so that we can comprehend what is happening in these small, confusing passages that we come across, like in John 12, 37 to 40. So just to summarize where we're at so far, all people have a sin nature and are slaves to sin. All people reject God and seek after something lesser. Because of God's infinite holiness, He judges this sin. There will be a judgment at the end, but He also judges in the here and now. His judgment comes in the form of letting people have what they want, which is not Him. Part of this judgment is His blinding the eyes and hardening their hearts towards Him which is actually what sinful people want. And so in John, we see Jesus performing many miracles and teaching the people, and time and time again, crowds of people walk away from him, rejecting him, wanting to kill him, wanting something other than what Jesus has to offer. This takes place here in John 12, and so John shares this passage in Isaiah to show his readers what is happening. The scriptures said this would happen. The unbelief of the people was a fulfillment of scripture. Now, maybe some of you are sitting here thinking that I just skimmed over this passage. We got through it pretty quickly. 
Looking at the clock, we'll be home early for lunch today. Sorry, but I am not done yet. I don't want us here leaving today thinking that this is just one little spot in John and that this really isn't what's taking place or how God works. After all, many of us are here today because we have seen Jesus. We have come to know and to understand and to believe. We're here to worship our Lord and Savior, so this passage could not possibly mean what it says. Or at the very least, it does not apply to everyone. Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. I want to spend a little bit of time in Matthew uh, here as well today. Here we have a passage that I really believe helps us to understand more of what we see in John. Now, the Gospel of John is different than the other three. John is very theological in nature, and yet not contradictory with the others. The Gospels, though different from one another, still give us a unified picture of God and how He is at work in His creation. And so let's take a look at what Matthew writes, starting in verse 20 of chapter 11. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow, that's a good Sunday morning scripture reading passage. Here we get some judgment language again. We see that word woe that Isaiah said of himself regarding his sinfulness before God. Jesus is crying out woe to these cities where he had done many signs and yet was rejected. They saw but did not perceive They heard but did not understand, and a final judgment will come, and this final judgment does not look good for them. And so Jesus denounces these cities full of people, and then he prays, and Matthew records this prayer for us. Follow along in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What? Jesus prays and thanks the Father for hiding the truth about Jesus from the people. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Jesus thanks the Father for His just judgment on sinners by blinding their eyes to the truth. I mean, we just saw God in the Old Testament talk about it, but that was just back then, right? Jesus is different, right? Remember when God asks, who will go for us? This judgment was Trinitarian. Before we continue, flip back to our passage in John 12. We're going to come back here to Matthew, so keep a finger there. Flip back to John 12 for a moment. John quotes Isaiah, and then in chapter 12, verse 41, John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. 
In Isaiah 6, Isaiah said he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In John, he says, Isaiah saw his glory. Who is the his in John, or sorry, who is the his John is writing about in chapter 12? It's Jesus. John says, Isaiah saw Jesus. The Lord on his throne, God the Son, along with the Father and Spirit, together pronounced judgment on sinners by way of hardening their hearts and blinding their eyes. And in Matthew, Jesus proclaims judgment on all these cities and then turns and prays to God the Father and says, thank you for hiding your truth from these people. And then Jesus says, and thank you for revealing it to little children, his children, his people. John 10, what does Jesus call them? His sheep. God does not take good people who love him and then says he does not want them. Do not hear me say that. Do not hear the scriptures write that. God does not take good people who love him and then says he does not want them. He takes rebellious people who don't want him and judges them by not letting them hear him. This is an important distinction. God responds to fallen people by giving them what they want. And Jesus thanks the Father for this. And Jesus thanks the Father for revealing the truth to these, to these others, to his sheep. What does Jesus say in verse 26 back in Matthew? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. These sinners got what they wanted, which was to have nothing to do with God. And these sinners had the truth revealed to them by the gracious will of God. Jesus continues on in verse 27. Again, back in Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Did you catch that? Let's read it together slowly. Verse 27. All things, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Sinful people rebelling against God, dead in sin, slaves to our sin nature, come to know the Father only because the Son chooses to reveal Him to them. This language is right in line with what Jesus says in John chapter 6. We went through that one earlier this fall. No one is even able to come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. As Jesus so often says in John, he and the Father are one. They work in tandem together. My brothers and sisters, our takeaway from today is that our belief is a grace from God. Our belief is a grace from God. The truth of the Son revealed to us by the Father and the truth of the Father revealed to us by the Son, the saving faith that we have in God, the love that we have for God is a grace from God by the will of God. 
Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son. And remember that to know is not just an awareness of someone's existence. It is an intimate relationship. God in the Old Testament tells Israel, you of all the nations have I known, or only you of all the nations have I known. Does that mean God did not know of any other nation besides Israel? No, he knew them all. Israel of all the nations he had the intimate relationship with. Jesus says, no one knows the Father. No one loves the Father. No one trusts in the Father. No one is intimately connected to the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. And then catch this. Jesus immediately says, still continuing on in in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In John, Jesus repeatedly tells unbelievers why they don't believe, and then goes on to continue teaching truth anyway. Jesus proclaims the truth to crowds of people all over the place. He performs miracles on all kinds of people. Over and over again, so many do not believe. Jesus gives thanks to the Father for blinding their eyes and for graciously revealing truth to His sheep, His children. And then He goes right back to the wide call to all people to come to Him. Now, a few paragraphs later in Matthew, Jesus gives the parable of the soils. Seed goes out to all these different soils, and only in the one soil does it take root, grow up, and produce fruit. And Jesus says to His disciples in Matthew 13, verse 11, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. And then Jesus quotes the same passage from Isaiah that John uses in John 12 to describe why people do not believe. You might be familiar with the saying, he who has ears, let him hear. That's what's meant here. Not everyone is granted the ears to hear. The ears to hear comes from the gracious will of the Father, as Jesus says in Matthew 11. My friends, my brothers and sisters here this morning, our belief, our faith, our connection to God is a grace from God. Sinners deserve just judgment. We are all sinners. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Everyone, everyone here this morning deserves justice. My friends, you don't want fair. We love God's justice, just not on ourselves. Because of God's great mercy, those who have come to know Christ have received grace in place of justice. Now, I know we're running long, but looking at the clock, we still have time to get home before lunch, so I'm going to give you just a little bit more. There is such an amazing consistency in Scripture, and we need to see this consistency if we're going to be consistent in our faith. In Romans 11, Paul is talking about the Israelite people and all those Israelites who have not come 
to the Israelite Messiah. People are questioning, did God reject his people? And Paul says, absolutely not. He has kept for himself a remnant. Remember back in Isaiah, God said he would blind eyes and harden hearts, and the land would be laid waste, but there would be a stump remaining, a holy seed. Now here in Romans 11, Paul reminds his readers about what we see back in 1 Kings 19. Elijah is crying out to God that Israel has killed all the prophets and turned their backs on God, and they're now hunting him. Elijah thinks he's honestly the only person left who has continued to follow God. And Paul asks his readers, here's an, this is in Romans 11, what was God's reply to Elijah back in 1 Kings 19? He says in Romans 11, 4 to 8, God said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul continues, so too at the present time there is a remnant, that's a group of people seeking God, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. And he continues, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Those chosen by God obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. My brothers and sisters, we have these consistent teachings in Scripture from the Old Testament through the New Testament. And while it's important that we understand sin and judgment, our call is not to dwell on it. Trust me, talking about sin and judgment is not fun. It's important to understand, but it's not a great, enjoyable message to either prepare or give. Our takeaway for today is not to dwell on judgment, not to focus on blind eyes, on deaf ears, or on hard hearts. Our takeaway is to rejoice in God's amazing grace. While we were dead in sin, children of wrath like the rest of the world, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read that again. Just a, a paraphrase of the first 10 verses. While we were dead in sin, children of wrath like the rest of the world, God made us alive together with Christ. And He raised us up. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. You may be tempted to ask why. Why did God save me? Why did God save anyone? God would be completely justified in properly judging the entire world and not saving anyone. For all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve justice. So why did God choose to save anyone? Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 4-6, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, and here it is, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His 
glorious grace. By His will, for His purpose, for His glory, we have received mercy and grace. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, all of creation is about the glory of God. Everything happens ultimately to demonstrate His glory. As Paul writes in in Romans 9, both justice and mercy demonstrate His glory. Let us understand the depths of sin. Let us understand the just judgment of God, but let us dwell on, let us celebrate the riches of His glorious grace. Paul continues in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My brothers and sisters, your faith is a gift. If you are here today, if you're watching online today, and you have come to understand your sin, repent of it, and enjoy a right relationship with God, it is because of His grace, freely given as a gift to you. My friends, know that God can change any heart. You've probably heard a lot of amazing testimonies about people that had no business being a follower of Jesus. God can change any heart. Know that God gives life from death. Let us proclaim the truth of God's Word to our world, in our communities, in our places of work, in our schools, in our families, to our friends. Let us proclaim of God's glorious grace to everyone and pray that He uses His gospel message to turn hearts to Him, to bring people to the place of bending bending their knee to Him in submission as King, to bring people to the place of repenting of sin and looking to Christ as Savior. Let's pray. Holy Father God, you are holy and you are just. You are creator and you are judge. Lord, we are your creation. Lord, we all admit that we deserve your just judgment. We all have sinned. We all rebelled. We all chose your creation over you. We desired less than you. We desired, we were happy with stuff, not needing you. And God, your word says that that attitude, that choice, deserves judgment justly. And so, God, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory. And yet we are here worshiping you thanks to your grace, your mercy. You have revealed yourself to us. You have broken the chains of sin. You have set us free. You have picked us up and turned us towards yourself, God. 
You work in us every day to continue to seek after you. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in your scriptures, God, and now I pray that as all of us go out from here today, God, that we will not be afraid, we will not be ashamed, we will proclaim your gospel message to this community, God, knowing that you can change any heart. God, that you use us, you use our voice, you use our works to draw people to yourself. And so, God, use us. Use this church, Lord. And God, as we go out from here today, Lord, I just, I thank you again for your word. God, help us to not stumble over the difficult passages, but embrace them because we know that you are good and your word is truth. Amen.